And it's good to see what the Lord is doing. We're growing, and we, we thank God for that. And I want you to become an evangelist. Get out there and tell people. Uh, all you got to do is say, God's moving. We'd like for you to come to church and, and see what he's doing. Who knows? He might change your life. And uh, just invite. Uh, if, you, if you tasted an ice cream flavor that just rang your bell, you would know exactly how to tell somebody about it and where they could get it, couldn't you? Come on, Baskin and Robbins, let's just say there was a new flavor and you got it and it was chocolate and it, was, and it had all the different, it was just the perfect mix of everything you ever dreamed of in an ice cream and you tasted it. And you went out of there, you would be a witness for that Baskin Robbins ice cream. And you would do good at it. You've got to come try this ice cream. It is absolutely incredible. Who cares what it costs? It was the most incredible tasting stuff I've ever had in all my life. That's all you got to do with Jesus. That's all you got to do. It's that simple. All right. Let's pray together and we'll get into the book of Philippians. Lord, we thank you for Philippians. We thank you for this incredible word that you brought to us from heaven. Using the Apostle Paul to give it to us, we thank you, Lord, that it is going to speak to us tonight and minister to us tonight. We thank you, Lord, for everything that you've been doing for Easter. But now, Lord, we're going forward with resurrection. And for us to do that, Lord, we've got to be built up in the faith. Build us up, Lord. Speak to us. Now, will you breathe a prayer, church, and just say, Lord, I receive your word tonight change my life in Jesus name. Amen. God bless you. You can be seated and let's, let's get into this tonight. I'll tell you, it was an experience for me, the four services, because I've never preached four services in a row. And I was a little bit concerned about my voice because I'd never done it, but my voice was fine. I could have done a fifth. I could have done a fifth service. So that was encouraging to me. And I'm just telling you that free. Anyway. All right. And I was starving when I got home. I mean, starving. I said, how long before we eat, Kathy? She said, 30 minutes. I said, that's too long. Anyway, we're going to look at Epaphroditus tonight. Triumph in sickness. Epaphroditus. Now, last time we looked at Timothy's great example of true servanthood. Remember that? We looked at servanthood. And just looking back over the letter, bringing us up to speed, you remember how Paul is using first Jesus Christ as the ultimate servant. He was in glory, yet God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, and Jesus Christ left what he had in glory, what we call condescended, became a man, took upon himself not only humanity, but then became a servant. And not just a servant, but he went all the way to the cross for his creation and died for us. And Paul said, let this mind be in you that was also in Christ Jesus. What mind? The mind of a servant. Let this mind be in you, the mind of a servant, where you condescend and you help people, you minister to people. Listen, there's nothing that'll bless you more than coming out of your shell and ministering to people. You depressed? I have a solution. Minister to people. Are you feeling some self-pity? I've got a solution. Find somebody who has a need and meet that need. 
there is, it's, it's therapeutic to serve other people. And if we're going to call ourselves Christians, then the one who lives inside of us was the ultimate servant. He washed the disciples' feet and then said, as I have done, you do likewise. Wow. I don't know many feet washers anymore. We used to wash feet all the time in the 70s in the Jesus movement. It happened all the time in our meetings. Try that now and watch everybody head for the door. But it's, it's a picture of servanthood. And then he went from using Jesus as the ultimate servant to Timothy. And last week we looked at Timothy, whose servanthood was amazing. Now he's not stopping with Timothy, but he's going into an unknown man. We don't know his name really well, Epaphroditus. I don't even know how you would say that short. I don't know how, Epaph, hey, Ep, I don't know, Epaphroditus. But look what he did. He served even through sickness. Now, chapter 2, verses 25 to 27, Paul says, I considered it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus. Now, look what he calls him. Say it with me, everybody. My brother, that's two of you, let's try it again. My brother, fellow worker, and fellow soldier. But your messenger, in other words, they had sent Epaphroditus to Paul in prison who ministered to my need. So he calls him a brother, a fellow worker, and a soldier. And uh, then he goes on, since he was longing for you all and he was distressed because you had heard that he was what, everyone? He was sick. For indeed he was sick. Look how bad it got. Almost to death. He almost died. Epaphroditus almost died, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me, says Paul, also, lest I should have had sorrow upon sorrow. Notice, can I just point it out without somebody thinking it's heresy? This man was sick, and he did not get supernaturally healed. And the man was there, Paul, who handed out handkerchiefs and demons came out. That tells me that healing is sovereign. Because here was this man almost dying, he was so sick. But it definitely gives the impression he went ahead and bore through that sickness until he got better. But it was not an instantaneous miracle. I'm just pointing that out to you because that's in the Word of God. Paul had only praise for this otherwise unknown man. Now, Timothy was Paul's son, and Epaphroditus was his brother. Now I say he was his son. Timothy was Paul's son in the faith. But Epaphroditus was his brother. Epaphroditus had been sent as a missionary minister by the Philippians to minister to Paul and was likely the one that carried Paul's letter back to the Philippians. So the Philippians apostle, Paul, who had birthed that church after he was delivered from that Philippian jail and the earthquake and all that happened in that incredible story, um, he had to leave town. He was driven out of town. And so now they've learned that he's in prison. And what do they do? They anointed Epaphroditus to be a missionary minister to go and visit him in prison. Jesus said, I was in prison and you visited me. Or I was in prison and you didn't visit me. I was sick and you didn't come to see me. Or you did come to see me. 
Jesus made a point of pointing out that when somebody's in jail, you ought to go see them. When they've done something wrong, you ought to go see them. But especially if they've done something right and they're in jail for it. We may see that day right here in America where somebody's in jail for preaching the gospel. We may very well see that day in this country. You really believe that, Pastor Jeff? Yes, I do. I wish, I, I wish that I didn't feel relatively confident saying that, but I do. I think it's possible. That I could, t- I could stand up someday and teach Romans 1 that homosexuality is a sin along with adultery and fornication and other sexual sins and be arrested for a hate crime in America. We're in a battle, folks. And Paul was thrown into the Roman prison for preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so Epaphroditus went to visit him, to minister to him, to hold his hands, pray for him, strengthen him, encourage him. To Paul, he had proven to be a fellow worker, messenger, and soldier. And I want you to notice how often Paul uses military terms to describe the ministry. Listen, if you think the ministry is a career choice, can I wake you up tonight? Because the ministry is not a career choice. You don't say, well, you know, I'm pretty good talking in front of people, and I've got, I'm a real people person, and I'm an organizer by nature, so I just think I'll go into the ministry. You a fool. You're a fool. You know why? Because the ministry is a war zone. I said it's a war zone. And if you don't think that's true, try it for about a month. Now, I'm not trying to drive you away from the ministry, but I want you aware that when you go into the ministry, you have just stepped onto a battlefield. And it is a war zone. And you're going to be attacked. And, and Paul was always calling ministers soldiers. In his second letter to Timothy, he wrote these words, quote, you therefore must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. You would think Timothy had just gotten drafted and was headed to a battlefield. But no, he said, you're going to have to endure hardship, Timothy, as a soldier of Jesus Christ. Now, church, tonight, please be aware, if you're a Christian, you're supposed to be, among other things, a soldier for Jesus Christ, a fighter for Jesus Christ, one who gets on his side, on his team, and fights the good fight of faith. He doesn't call people to be on the sidelines. He doesn't call bench warmers. He calls people to get onto the field and fight. We're in a war. And if the church doesn't get off of this nicey-nicey stuff and realize that, listen, Jesus was more than a nice man, Jesus was the very Son of God. And when I look at Paul, and when I look at James and John and Peter and all the rest, they all gave their lives in the battle. They gave their blood for the battle. Jesus gave his blood for the battle. We're in a battle against not flesh and blood, but spiritual wickedness in heavenly places, rulers of darkness in this world, principalities and powers who have put the church in the crosshairs and it's time to fight. 
or we're going to lose this nation, we're going to lose our testimony, we're going to lose our freedoms, and we're going to wake up one day and say, what in the world happened? Well, we should have fought when the fighting was good. Now, I'm going to tell you, this is going to be a fighting church. I don't mean disunity within, but we're, we're going out there with a sword in our hand, the Word of God. And this is going to be a fighting church. This is a fighting church. I am not going to sit on the sidelines and let secularists and humanists and atheists and agnostics and progressives and liberals take this nation from us. Not going to do it. Seriously. Seriously. Better wake up. Paul viewed the ministry as a battlefield, both bloody and real. At the end of his life, he wrote, say it with me, I have fought the good fight. I was a fighter. I fought, but it was a good fight. It's the only good fight there is. You can have a bad fight at home. But you know what? There's all kinds of bad fights. There's one good fight, and it's the fight of faith. It's taking the gospel to the world. It's fighting the enemy who is ruining people's lives. Epaphroditus, we notice, had a malady, a sickness. Yet that did not keep him from being burdened that his home church had learned of his illness. Now, you guys in here, tell the truth along with me. You're not, you're not a good patient when you're sick, are you? I'm not. You know how come, guys? Because we never had a baby. I'm going to tell you, that's why. Because you have a baby, you have suffered to the max and lived to tell about it. Men have never had a baby. So we're babies when we suffer. We get sick, oh, help me. Please bring me, ask for, we expect that wife to wait on us hand and foot, but let her get sick. And we say, you need me again? Come on, guys. Don't look at me so holy. We're... We're not good patients and we're not good nurses either. But I want you to notice this thing about Epaphroditus now. Epaphroditus was concerned that his church, his home church, the Philippian church, was going to be burdened that he was sick, really sick. He wasn't concerned about himself. He was concerned about them. Now that's rare. Look what Paul said. He was longing for you all. And he was distressed because you had heard that he was sick. Here he is visiting Paul and something got him. And he went down. It had to be a fever. It had to be something really severe because it almost killed him. And he was distressed. Not that this was happening to him, but that his home church would be overly concerned. He knew they loved him. The word distress is powerful. It's from a word meaning full of anguish, deeply weighed down. Epaphroditus was deeply anguished that his family and friends would be concerned about him, and he didn't want them concerned. He wasn't thinking about, I'm about to die. See, when I, and, I, and I'm focusing on that because I want us to zero in on how powerfully these people have been impacted with the character of Christ. How Jesus had been formed in them to the point where they were not selfish people. They weren't self-seeking. They weren't narcissistic, like so many in our day, 
who love to look in the mirror and sing praises to what they see. These people were always thinking about others. Let this mind be in you. Was this mind in Jesus? Remember when he was carrying that cross and the women of Jerusalem were crying over him and, and wailing because he was beaten beyond recognition, carrying the cross up the hill, and he looked at them, no self-pity whatsoever. He said, don't weep for me. Weep for yourselves and your children's children. Don't weep for me. How powerful is that? He was not filled with self-pity. He wasn't self-focused. He was always concerned about others. And here we have the same thing in Epaphroditus. What about you and me? Are we that way? The more you seek Jesus, the more you become like him. The more you draw near, the more you get like him. This good man was more worried about his family and friends' concern for him than his own sickness. Rather than being filled with self-pity, he had an unselfish concern for other people. And I think that's powerful. That's Jesus in him. Now, his sickness was so serious, he almost died. And Paul wanted the Philippians to know that. There's no intimation of this man having been supernaturally healed at the hands of Paul. In fact, we can hear in Paul's voice relief that the recovery of Epaphroditus spared him from further sorrow and that he viewed his recovery as another token of the mercy of God. It was the mercy of God that he recovered. But apparently he went through the whole sickness, whatever it was. Sometimes people are healed. Sometimes they go through something. You ask me, why is that? I tell you, I don't know. I wish I did know. Catherine Kuhlman, who had, I think, one of the most valid, powerful, well, the most powerful healing ministry I've ever seen. I came to Fort Worth and saw her in the 70s. She would walk out there on stage and people would start getting healed. But it was always a minority of the people who were there in wheelchairs, on crutches, on stretchers, dying, sick, on their last leg. And she would always say her first question when she got to heaven was going to be, why weren't they all healed? She wanted to know. I don't know the answer to that. Here we have an example in the Bible where the greatest healer on the earth in that day Paul, who would hand out, like I said, handkerchiefs and demons would come crying out of people and they would be healed on the spot. Peter would walk down the road and his shadow would heal people lined up on the curb. And yet here this man went through his sickness with Paul right there. Why? I don't know. But he did. And, and, and when he got to the other side of it, Paul considered it mercy. And that sorrow was not added upon sorrow in Paul's life. He did not want to send a message to the Philippian church. Hey, the guy you sent to me has gone home to be with the Lord. He didn't want to do that. Now look at verses 28 to 30. Therefore, I sent him, says Paul, I sent Epaphroditus eagerly that when you see him again, you may rejoice and I may be less sorrowful. Let me translate that for you. He's saying, I am so happy that I'm able to send him back to you alive. And I'm going to get him to you quick before he dies on me or he gets it back again because I don't want to be sorrowful. I've got enough sorrows. 
I don't want another one. You know, sometimes, church, God will let us go through things that are very crushing, very difficult. And Paul, in another place, even said one time we were despairing even of life. We didn't think we were going to live through what we were going through. But we got through it. And here, Epaphroditus got through it. And can I just encourage you tonight that there's a difference between a miracle which is instantaneous and a healing which can take time. And also, sometimes God chooses to do something instantaneously. And other times, he allows us to go through a process. And let me tell you further, usually you get to go through the process. You know why? Because if you never had a problem, you'd never know that God could solve them. You'd never know what faith in his word could do. Sometimes he's, he wants us to walk through a valley so that we can learn to hang on to that word, learn the power of prayer, learn the preciousness of his presence, learn to not be afraid of difficult circumstances. And we come out on the other side with some spiritual muscle and sinew because we went through it instead of being plucked out of it. Sometimes he takes you out and sometimes he takes you through. My experience has been usually he takes you through. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. I have learned to fear no evil. Why? Because you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. So that's why we go through valleys, because we learn the rod, we learn the staff, we learn his presence, we learn his loyalty, his faithfulness, his goodness. And you come out on the other side, and you can say to somebody, because you've been there, I know you're weeping, but weeping is only going to endure for a night, because I've been there, and can I tell you, dear one, joy comes in the morning. Come on. It's true. So don't look up and say, well, where is God? If you're having to go through something, just hang on, read the word a lot, pray a lot, get real, real clean in God's eyes, and he's going to take you through. You're going to make it. Amen. Say with me, I'm going to make it. Because greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. Give him praise tonight. Go ahead and praise him. Amen. Now, Paul says to the Philippian church, receive him, that is Epaphroditus, therefore, in the Lord with all gladness and hold this man in esteem. Because for the work of Christ, he came close to death. Not regarding his life. Not regarding his life. To supply what was lacking in your service toward me. Now, he's not telling the Philippian church that they were lax in taking care of him. He's pointing out that the man they sent really did do what he had been sent to do. And he says, now when he gets back to you, I want you to hold this guy in high reputation, high esteem, because he almost died and he didn't regard his own life. He stuck it out, he stayed with it, he stayed true to what you sent him to do. I found a little verse This really hit me. Jonathan, Saul's son, once said to David, 
quote, you shall be missed because your seat shall be empty. You shall be missed because your seat shall be empty. That was when David was about to have to flee the kingdom to avoid Saul killing him. Jonathan is saying, I'm going to miss you when I look at that empty chair. I'm going to miss you. There's no doubt that this is the way Paul felt about Epaphroditus. I've really been blessed by him being here. And when I look at where he sat and now it's empty, I'm going to miss you. In this church, since we've been in this building, we've had several people go home to be with the Lord. And I got to tell you, sometimes I look at where they sat. And I go, I miss you. Because they would amen me, smile at me, and suddenly they're gone. They're in heaven. But I can say, I can say with Jonathan, you're missed because your seat is empty. Amen? Amen? And Paul gives firm instruction. Hold this man in esteem. This word for esteem is powerful. It means precious. In 1 Peter 2, verses 4 and 6, where Peter says that Jesus is chosen of God and precious, same word. Hold him in esteem, meaning let him be precious to you as Jesus is precious to you. Powerful stuff. Now in chapter 3, Paul gives to the Philippians a beautiful series of exhortations. And this is my favorite part. I love Paul's little, little mini exhortations, you know, rejoice evermore and everything, give thanks. We know a bunch of them, but he, he begins to draw closer to where they live on a day-to-day basis. In fact, folks, Paul would not be Paul if he did not make practical application to his great themes that he deals with in the first two chapters, so profound, the Christology that we've been through, that he was co-eternal with God and all these powerful truths about Jesus. Paul will take you to the heights and then he always brings you back down and says, now let's get practical. How are you going to live this out? And that's what I want to know. How am I going to live it out? Now, first he strikes again the keynote of the epistle. Here it is. And I want y'all to read this with me. Ready? Verse one. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. For to me to write the same things to you is not tedious, but for you it is safe. Now there he goes with the word rejoice again. That's the theme of this letter from prison. Don't forget, not a place where there's a lot of joy, but he keeps talking about joy. What is with this guy? If I'm in prison, I'm saying get me a better lawyer. I'm saying, what move can I make to get out of here? But Paul, all, he's saying, look, I want you to rejoice. Keep rejoicing, keep rejoicing. Yeah, I'm in prison. Yeah, I got a Roman guard standing here. I don't have any freedom anymore, but, but I want you to keep rejoicing because I do. Say it with me, rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. Let's try it again. Rejoice in the Lord. If you leave tonight remembering anything, remember those four words. Because those four words encapsulate this letter. We don't doubt that when this was read to the Philippians, somebody had to have asked Epaphroditus, does Paul really rejoice sitting in that prison? Does he really? You were there. 
Does he really do what he has sent us an exhortation to do? I want to know. Is this real with him? Or is he just telling us to do it? And the answer would have been, you better believe he does. You better believe he does. And then we can imagine somebody else saying, well, how can we rejoice when we're losing wives, husbands, children, homes, and livelihood to persecution and martyrdom? We're watching, our, we, we, our children have been martyred. Our parents have been martyred. Our spouses have been martyred. We've lost reputation. We've lost our finance. We've lost everything. How are we supposed to rejoice? And I think that's a great question. How do you do this? Anybody ever wondered that? Doesn't it kind of seem fake? You go up to somebody, you say, how you doing? Oh, blessed and prosperous in the Lord. Really great. Thanks. Now, how are you really doing? Blessed, happy, and prosperous in the Lord. It can sound canned, can't it? But now, have you ever wondered, truthfully, how do I rejoice in the Lord when it doesn't look like anything's going my way, when I'm under a big bunch of stress? How do I rejoice in the Lord? Is that real? Can you really do that? Epaphroditus would have replied, read Paul's words carefully. He said, rejoice where? In the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. That's the key. Not for everything give thanks, but in everything give thanks. And here, rejoice in the Lord. No matter how dark the day is, can I tell you the truth tonight? The Lord is still the Lord. He's still full of love and compassion. He's still concerned about us. He's still on the throne. He's still sovereign over all things and has promised to work all things together for our good. Do you believe that? All right, rejoice in, in other words, you take your eyes off the circumstances. You get your eyes onto him, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has now sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. What did Jesus focus on? The joy set before him, not the suffering of the cross. And what is Paul telling us to do? Rejoice in the Lord and don't focus on your circumstances. Rejoice in the Lord. He is still mighty to save, mighty to heal, mighty to deliver. He is still our keeper. He is still Lord over all and is our mighty keeper. Paul's message of joy is simple and profound. If we dwell on our sorrows, and we can do that anytime we want, anytime you want, you can look at the things that are going wrong and focus on them and spiral down. We're going to become discouraged and depressed and we're going to sink just like Peter sank in the water. As soon as he looked at the troubled waves and the howling wind, he sank. As long as he looked at Jesus, he walked on the water. He walked on the water. But when he thought, what am I doing walking on this water? This is hundreds of feet deep. There are sharks down there. I can drown here. And these waves are big. And this wind is really howling. Down he went. But thank God Jesus grabbed him by the hand and held him up anyway. If we feed 
These emotions of staring at, focusing at, fixing on the things that are wrong, they will soon sour our whole life and render us useless. How are you doing? Oh, I've had a rough day. Well, how, how's this week been? Terrible. It's been terrible. I'm wondering where God is. Please pray for me. Bind the devil. He's tearing me up. The devil's not doing anything. I'm going to be bold here. The devil's not doing anything. You're not letting him do. There are times for us all when circumstances don't go our way. Anybody ever had that happen to you? Things didn't go your way. Anybody have things in your life right now that are not going your way? Anybody having everything go your way? I want to meet you after church. Can I meet you? I really want you to touch me a little bit and see if it'll rub off. Because things rarely always go my way. I mean, I'm blessed. A lot of things are blessed in my life, but I can, I don't know that I can ever say everything. Everything is just peachy keen. There's always a battle, always a struggle, always a temptation, always this, always that, always the other. The enemy's always pecking at you and hounding you and trying to get at you. And you got to stay in the word and you've got to stay in prayer. And then, and then there's people. I mean, come on. There's people, and, and, and we don't always get along with everybody, do we? And some people, you're, you're the fingernail, and they're the chalkboard. And, and you work right next to them. And you've bound it and loosed it and prayed for God to deliver you, and he has not. And you're wondering what to do. There's only one thing you can do. Rejoice in the Lord. That's all you can do. And, and because the key is you got to keep the victory between your two ears. We're tempted to say with the patriarch Jacob, aren't we? All these things are against me. Everything's against me. But Paul's conviction in times like these was that the praising man prevails. The praising man prevails. So let's learn to rejoice in the Lord. He controls all of the factors of matter, space, time. And he's going to make all things work together for good. He promised that he would. Though you cannot see it now. You're flying by the instruments because you can't see out the windshield. It's too cloudy. Praise him and rejoice in his goodness when the clouds block the sun. And the threatening thunder rolls. The sun is going to shine again and joy is going to come in the morning, folks. That's a promise. Now next, Paul is faithful to warn us of the dangers in the Christian life. There are dangers. And here's one of them. He says, beware of dogs. Beware of evil workers. Beware of the mutilation. Boy, who is he talking about? Dogs? Evil workers? Mutilation? It sounds like Friday the 13th right? Look at this. For we are the circumcision who worship God in the spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. Now here's what he's saying. Watch out for deceivers. Paul calls deceivers dogs. Dogs bark and they bite. In Paul's day, they roamed in wild packs like wolves, attacking, tearing, devouring. Dogs weren't as domesticated as they are in our day. I don't consider dogs bad. 
but they were bad back then, but they went in packs. They would attack you. They would kill you. They would eat you. And he says, that's what deceivers are like. God's people, on the other hand, are sheep and dogs wreak havoc among sheep. No doubt about it, the New Testament reeks of the presence of deceivers attacking the church. So many of the epistles were written because of deceivers attacking the church. Is the church being attacked by deceivers now? Oh, you better know it. I I don't know how churches make it that don't hold up the Word of God as supreme. I don't know how churches survive. Well, they don't. Who don't hold up the Word as inerrant, as perfect, as irrefutable, as God's Word, and say, if you depart from this, you're dog meat for the devil. They're dropping like flies out there who put the Word of God aside because of deceivers. Deceivers are banging on the door of the church. Now, Paul also calls them evil workers. Now, the dog's analogy reflected their character, but evil workers reveals their conduct. Conduct flows from your character. You do what you are. You are what you do. You do according to who you are. Character is everything. And he's saying their character, these evil workers, it means depraved. These false teachers were depraved, bad through and through. They were trying to seduce the church away from the simplicity of the gospel that is in Jesus Christ. How are you saved? By grace, through faith, period. Right? Now, what if we had somebody come in here and they began and they joined the church and they began to go to life groups and, and, and got into a little bit of leadership. And all of a sudden they began to teach and share with people throughout this church that really grace by faith is not all you must do to be saved. But there are certain things, rituals you must observe in order to be truly saved. You can't just say, Lord Jesus, forgive me and come into my heart. I repent of my sin and I believe you died for me and rose from the dead. That's not enough for you to be saved. You are also going to have to adhere to certain rituals. And if you don't do these rituals, then your salvation is not complete. You're still going to hell. Now, I want you to imagine how that would begin to trouble this church. How it would begin to rattle some people. And and I would have some of the younger believers coming to me and saying, Pastor Jeff, is that true? Could this be true? That it's not just grace by faith, but I need to perform this ritual and this and that ritual and, and, and I've got to do some works to assure my salvation? And I would say to you, absolutely not. Those are dogs. Those are deceivers. They are trying to rob you of your peace in Jesus Christ. That's what was going on here. That's what was going on here. The mutilation is addressing the false message of these evil workers, that one must also be circumcised in order to be saved. That's what they were saying. So he called them mutilation. Paul hated this false message with a passion because his theme song was grace by faith, grace by faith, grace by faith, grace by faith. Man, that was his theme song. That's all he talked about. We are saved not by works, but grace by faith. Not by works, lest any man should boast and say it was my works that got me saved. 
The cross of Jesus Christ did away with any such ritual. He said, we worship God in the Spirit, says Paul. Those who have been born again have experienced the true circumcision, that of the heart. We have zero confidence in any fleshly ritual or in the flesh generally. And if you want to brag about fleshly credentials and achievements, Paul said, I've got you beat hands down. He says in verses 4 to 6, though I also might have confidence in the flesh, if anybody else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law, I was a Pharisee. Concerning zeal, I persecuted the church. Concerning the righteousness which is in the law, I was blameless. Paul's former religiosity put them all to shame. He was better than all of them at being religious. He'd been there, done that, had the t-shirt. But one glimpse of the Lord Jesus Christ on the road when the light shone around him and he was knocked to the ground, not off a horse. There was no horse in that story. He was walking and the light knocked him to the ground. And a voice said to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And the first thing out of his mouth, what do you want me to do, Lord? One glimpse of the Lord blew away his religion forever. And furthermore, the loss of everything he had worked for. Look at what he lost. All of his training, credentials, reputation, and achievements paled in comparison to knowing Christ. Read this 7 and 8 with me. This is so powerful. But what things were gained to me? These I have counted loss for Christ. Keep reading. Yet indeed, I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ. Paul gave up everything for Christ. His home in Tarsus, his parents, all hope of a settled home life. He had given up his Jewish religion, his ambition to climb the ladder to the top so he could rule the Sanhedrin, and he was well on his way to that. He'd given up his health to hardships, floggings, perils, and shipwrecks. He had given up the smile in favor of the Jerusalem church to minister to the Gentile world. He had given up his freedom and would one day give up his life on the altar of Nero's hate. He detested anything that might stand in the way of his pursuit of Jesus Christ. Any such obstacle was dung, worthless refuse compared to gaining Jesus Christ. If we were able to ask Paul if he ever felt the loss of the things he gave up, he would look at us in astonishment, no doubt in my mind about it. He would say, loss of trash? What loss? I've seen Jesus face to face. He's fairer than the day. He's lovely beyond all. Loss? Not hardly. Only gain by knowing him. Anything you've got to give up to gain Christ is equivalent to refuse, trash, dung. For the excellency of the knowledge 
of Jesus Christ. No stronger call to total consecration and full throttle pursuit of Christ can be found in the words of Philippians 3.8 that we just read. That we might see Jesus Christ the way Paul did. Oh, church, we wouldn't whine anymore. We wouldn't complain anymore. This world would lose all its power to attract us or distract us. We would say with what Paul already said to his Philippian friends, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. I'm all about Christ when I'm alive, and if I die, I'm going to go be with him. So I'm all about Christ either way. Next time, we're going to look at a powerful position and a possession. Let's stand together, can we? I want us to pray tonight that the way that Paul was absolutely thunderstruck by Jesus Christ. How many of you can say, I I love him. I love Jesus Christ. I love him. You know why you love him? Because he first loved you, but we love him, right? But I see in this man (laughs) I see in this man what I feel I've known to the tenth power. And I want us just to pray that We will see Jesus like he did, where this world can no longer attract or distract us. And if we have to lose something to gain Christ, ah, so what? Wrong kind of friends, so what? Getting persecuted some, so what? Lose your reputation, so what? Trash! That I may know him, the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings. Let's pray, Father. We just thank you for the passion for Jesus we see in this apostle, the great apostle Paul. And we pray that, Lord, you would work that same passion, that same vision, that same love that we would be consumed with Jesus on a level that we've never known, like this man. Lord, do it, for you did it in him. He didn't do it, you did it in him. Do it in us. Church, breathe a prayer and say, Lord, help me to fall in love with you on a level I've never known. A level I've never known. Change me, rearrange me. Take out what needs to go and put in my heart what needs to come into my heart. Lord, renew my mind. Work that work of grace that Paul knew. The things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Here I am to worship. Here I am to bow. Let's lift our hands, everybody. Here I am to say that you're my God.